Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience Amateur Hour. I'm an aspiring neuroscientist fascinated by all things brain. I think it's an incredible field with new research coming out every day, and I'm excited to learn all about it and share it with you. Today, I'll be talking about the neuroscience of anxiety. We've all felt it before. Your hands get clammy, your stomach starts sinking, your armpits start working overtime. Regardless, whether it's the prospect of meeting your ex at a party or your upcoming presentation at work, we all get anxious. So what is it? Anxiety is a form of fear intended to inform you about any physical or emotional dangers, real or imagined, that pose a threat. Despite traditionally being a negative emotion, anxiety does serve a purpose. It ensures that we stay out of danger, we obey the rules of our social groups, and we retain our relationships with other people. So how is anxiety processed in the brain? So first things first, you absorb the sensory input that could pose danger and then transmit the signal to a brain region called the amygdala, which sends out a quote-unquote distress signal, which in turn activates the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is a part of your nervous system which regulates the body's unconscious actions, such as breathing or heart rate. This stress response is often called fight or flight, meaning that your body is gearing up to quickly react to get you out of that dangerous situation. Uh, This fight or flight response results in a bunch of physiological effects, such as dilated pupils, rapid heart rate and faster breathing, which is intended to pull more oxygen into your body, and flushed and pale skin. Now this one is, I found particularly interesting because it's actually your body pulling blood away from the surface of your skin where it's less important and towards your muscles and your heart to kind of get you ready to act. You also see potentially trembling, which is a side effect of your muscles being so tense and so ready to start moving that they can actually start shaking. It's actually kind of funny to think about all of these mechanisms that evolved to get caveman you away from the big, bad, scary saber-toothed tiger now kicking in whenever you have to speak in public. But all of these things are vitally important for you to perform in situations where you are under pressure. Severe anxiety, such as generalized anxiety disorder, which I will be focusing on today, can occur in an individual who has an exaggerated response to such situations. So where does that occur in the brain? A little almond-sized brain region called the amygdala has been shown to be crucial in the development and expression of conditioned fear through a central fear system, which simply means that the amygdala receives projections from other brain regions upstream and projects to more brain regions downstream. And this entire system is responsible for processing and mediating fear and anxiety. How do we know this? Researchers from the Yale University School of Medicine were able to activate the amygdala by inserting an electrode into the brain and electrically stimulating that brain region. They observed a variety of behavioral changes that resemble the symptoms of anxiety, such as increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, and increased breathing rate. Interestingly, stimulation of the amygdala resulted in the animal stopping all ongoing behavior and freezing in place which 
kind of makes sense if you think about what the stress response is meant to do. It's meant to stop you and in whatever you are doing and observe the situation, acknowledge whatever danger is there, and potentially get away from it. So activating the amygdala also produced face and jaw movements, which uh, are thought to be involved in producing the facial expressions of fear, such as wide eyes and flared nostrils. These are also intended to maximize your chances of seeing the potential danger and drawing in as much oxygen as possible, hence the flared nostrils. But I also remember reading a paper somewhere that showed that facial expressions are actually meant to communicate danger to our peers. Nevertheless, all of this evidence shows that the amygdala is involved in anxiety processing. Researchers Ventura Silva and others uh, from the University of Minho, I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm going to make an educated guess and say I'm probably not, but we're going to roll with it. In Portugal, also lesioned or stopped function at the amygdala and observed a decreased anxiety response to stressful situations in mice. So this indicates that not only is the amygdala involved in anxiety processing, it's necessary for anxiety processing to occur. These studies are usually done in a fear conditioning paradigm in which the animals are exposed to a neutral stimulus, such as a bright light or a sound at a specific frequency, um, which would normally produce absolutely no response. The neutral stimulus is then paired with an aversive stimulus, such as an electrical shock, until the animal uh, associates the previously neutral stimulus with fear. Now, this allows researchers to study the regions and the circuits involved in this behavior in the context of the relevant behavior. So, as I mentioned before, anxiety isn't brought about by activity in just one brain region, the amygdala. It's a whole fear system that's involved. After you sense the danger cue, that sensory stimulus and your surroundings are processed by the primary sensory cortices, such as visual cortex or auditory cortex, etc. And that signal is sent to the thalamus, a relay, sen- a relay center which sends the output to the amygdala. The amygdala and a region called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex process the aversive signal and send the output to the hippocampus and the brainstem to stimulate the sympathetic nervous system and produce defensive behaviors. So let's dive into some of these key regions, both upstream of the amygdala and downstream. So the amygdala projects to the hippocampus, whose name I'm pretty sure means water horse or seahorse or something similar. And if you have the time, I highly recommend Googling what this region looks like. It is absolutely beautiful. So the hippocampus is involved in a bunch of things including learning and memory, and I definitely intend to do a whole episode or multiple episodes on this topic and this brain region, because I honestly love the hippocampus with all of my heart and soul. I think it is super, super cool. Uh, But in the context of this central fear system, the hippocampus is responsible for encoding contextual information, such as your surroundings, that are associated with the danger cue. The hippocampus is also thought to play a role in the fear extinction by down-regulating amygdala response in safe contexts, which obviously begs the question, is dysfunction in the hippocampus somehow related to anxiety disorders? Food for thought. Another important region is the medial prefrontal cortex, which is right at the front of your brain 
and is vital in regulating cognitive functions such as attention, habit formation, memory, and many, many more. The previously mentioned dorsal anterior cingulate cortex is part of the medial prefrontal cortex. Um, We know that the medial prefrontal cortex provides top-down regulatory control of fear, uh, responding by receiving input from the thalamus and projecting to the amygdala to modulate fear behaviors on the basis of complex environmental information. If the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex is damaged, patients will struggle to associate certain actions with emotions such as fear and sadness. So where can it go wrong? Basic and human imaging studies have shown that the regions responsible for identifying fear stimuli and generating fear responses downstream can be hyperactive, underactive, or have structural abnormalities in anxious patients compared to control patients. In patients with panic disorders and specific phobias, disorders involving intense fears and panic, there have been reports of decreased amygdala volume and density, whereas in patients with generalized anxiety disorders, they may have increased amygdala volume. The larger the amygdala, potentially the more connections to the regions of the brain responsible for regulation of emotion. So does a larger amygdala mean an overactive amygdala and subsequently overactive emotional regulation? This kind of work is incredibly valuable in finding pharmacological targets for potential medications. Further studies conducted by Tara Kaminsky and others from Rutgers University and the Veterans Affairs Biomedical Research Institute in New Jersey postulated that reduced hippocampal volume and impaired hippocampal synaptic plasticity could be a risk factor for PTSD and anxiety. Also, quick clarification. Synaptic plasticity is the ability of connections between neurons in the brain to change over time, which is the underlying mechanism for many, many things, including learning. You'll often see that as you age or if you get neurodegenerative diseases, your brain's synaptic plasticity will suffer. A common example is that doing Sudoku puzzles will improve your neuroplasticity, but I I think the jury is still kind of out on that. I think it's more about doing novel things and instead of uh, repetitive actions, but that's a whole different conversation, and I will be happy to talk about that at another time. But back to business. Dysfunction of the hippocampus may increase the rate at which an animal withdraws from an unpleasant stimulus and increase the development of persistent avoidance behaviors, which is a risk factor for anxiety disorders. Also, cool tidbit. These experiments were conducted, or some of these experiments were conducted in Wistar Kyoto mice, which is an animal model I had never heard of, but uh, it displays many characteristics related to anxiety disorders, such as decreased activity and withdrawal in novel social and non-social challenges. Researchers have also focused on changes in the prefrontal cortex, the brain region that is more evolved than our closest genetic neighbors. In anxious individuals, neuroimaging studies have repeatedly shown structural abnormalities. Researchers have been able to show that the prefrontal cortex inhibits the amygdala, and this little piece of information will become become important soon, I promise. In patients with disorders involving intense and sudden fear, the prefrontal cortex appears to be underactive and subsequently inhibits the amygdala less, increasing amygdala activity overall. In contrast, patients with generalized anxiety disorder have overactivity in the prefrontal cortex, increasing the inhibition of the amygdala. 
And I, I think this is a really, really interesting finding um, and in a very active area of research. So I'm sure that, you know, we'll have more information about this as, as science goes on, as the years go on. But beyond the structural changes in independent brain regions, recent research has focused on the connectivity between different brain regions in patients with anxiety. It has been shown that there is decreased connectivity between emotional processing regions, such as the amygdala, and emotional modulation regions, such as the medial prefrontal cortex, supporting the idea of communication deficits between these two systems. Decreased modulation of the amygdala by the prefrontal cortex could result in an abnormal continuous activation of fear, contributing to persistent symptoms of anxiety. In addition, researchers have observed robust and reproducible increased connectivity in the thalamus in patients with generalized anxiety disorder, which, as I mentioned before, is an important relay station for sensory information transmission. It has connections all over the brain. This thalamus may play a role in filtering sensory information, so abnormal connectivity may cause sensory information filtering disorder and excessive alertness. So, I've started with a largely systematic overview of anxiety um, and how it relates to specific brain regions and circuits, because that's what I personally find most interesting. But it's important to remember that anxiety can occur as a result of differences on many different levels. For example, alterations on a systems level can be further examined on a network level, and then on a neuronal level, and then on a synaptic level, and then even on a molecular level. Past studies have suggested that neurons that receive signals via the chemical dopamine in the striatum play a role in avoidance behaviors as they relate to social phobias and anxiety disorders. Mice that lack the dopamine D2 receptor in neurons in the striatum, a brain region that coordinates motor and action planning and aspects of reward and motivation, specifically in these neurons called medium spiny neurons, so named, I believe, for their structure, but mice that lack the dopamine uh, D2 receptors in these medium spiny neurons actually spent less time in open spaces, which is a measurement of anxiety behavior in mice. It's important to note that they didn't spend less time in open spaces because they were moving around less, but because they actively chose to spend less time in open spaces. In addition, mice missing the D2 receptor in other populations of neurons did not replicate this behavior indicating that D2 receptors specifically in these striatal neurons are important for avoidance behaviors in mice. Similarly to too little dopamine associated with anxiety, too little serotonin has been linked to the presence of anxiety disorders. Serotonin, colloquially known as the happy neurotransmitter, is also involved in the regulation of mood, impulse control, sleep, libido, and cognitive functions such as memory and learning. Specifically, the serotonin receptor, the 5-HT1A receptor, is thought to play an important role in anxiety disorders. Knocking out this receptor resulted in anxiety-like behaviors in mice. However, in an interesting turn of events, there's also data that has shown that too much serotonin produced in the amygdala may also result in social phobias. However, I was unable to find a paper that explains why both are true for various anxiety disorders. It might be related to... Uh, different densities of the serotonin receptor, this 5-HT1A receptor, in different brain regions. But at the moment, the picture is a little cloudy. If anybody knows more, please send me the paper. In summary, generalized anxiety disorder 
involves a deficit in emotion generating and emotion modulating regions and the connections between these systems. Dysfunctions in dopamine and serotonin levels have also been linked to anxiety disorder, but much of the research on this ailment is very much still in progress. Finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety is diagnosed by a medical professional through a psychological evaluation using a system called the DSM-5, which stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, as published by the American Psychiatric Association, AMA, I'm pretty sure. In order to be diagnosed with anxiety, you have to exhibit the three following symptoms. One, the presence of excessive worry and anxiety about a variety of topics, events, or activities. Worry occurs more often than not for at least six months and is clearly excessive. Two, the worry is experienced as very challenging to control and may easily shift from one topic to another. Three, the anxiety and worry is accompanied by at least three of the following physical or cognitive symptoms. Restlessness, fatigue, impaired concentration, irritability, increased muscle aches, and soreness. Which, actually, if we think back to the whole sympathetic nervous system thing, constant muscle tension from activation of the sympathetic nervous system might lead to soreness. Which is really interesting because muscle soreness is never something that I associated with anxiety. So learn something cool. Um, And another one is difficulty sleeping. Treatments for anxiety vary and are catered to the individual. Options include psychotherapy, otherwise known as talk therapy, where you would meet with a therapist or a psychologist to reduce and mediate your anxiety, primarily by teaching you specific skills to manage your worries and to help you return to daily function. There are also medications that you can take. Antidepressants, including serotonin reuptake inhibitor and serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Those are both popular choices. They work off of the assumption that your your they work off of the assumption that your brain isn't producing enough serotonin on its own. Um, so when your brain does release the neurotransmitters, these reuptake blockers kind of ensure that it sticks around a little bit longer. So that, you know, your cells can absorb more of it. Interestingly, many patients don't do very well on this medication, or at the very least, don't respond uh, particularly well for four to six weeks, which you also see in patients um, with depression who are put on uh, SSRIs, as these are called. But um, this kind of supports the idea that, you know, there, there are more mechanisms involved beyond just serotonin deficiencies. Another option is buspirone, which I'm pretty sure I just butchered that name, but irrelevant, which is thought to decrease the amount or action of serotonin in certain parts of the brain by binding that 5-HT1A receptor. It simultaneously enhances dopaminergic and noradrenergic cell firing, but I don't know too much about it besides that. Uh, In limited circumstances, doctors may also prescribe benzodiazepines, which are sedatives, but they're also very habit-forming. They effectively work by just literally sedating you, so they're definitely not considered a long-term solution for anxiety. Other treatment options include lifestyle changes, such as staying active, eating well, and generally taking care of your body. You can also avoid things that may trigger the anxiety, such as alcohol and other drugs or specific situations. But that is 
all, that is a short, bite-sized overview of the neuroscience of anxiety. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you learned something new. And I have cited all of the sources and relevant papers that I found on this topic and that I used for my research in the show notes. So please find that there. Please rate and review. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neuroscienceamateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neurosciencemateurhour. Neuroscience Amateur Hour. I can't say it. Neuroscience Amateur Hour on Instagram. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching. I hope to see you again soon. <laughs>